I'm Jeff Nyquist, and I want to welcome the listeners to the StrategicCrisis.com podcast. Uh, for uh, well, 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 this is late September 2009 that we're doing this broadcast, and and uh, with me on the line is my co-host uh, Serge uh, and our special guest Alex from Canada. And uh, Alex has some interesting observations to make about what's going on in former Soviet Estonia. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Uh, hi, Jeff. Hi. Uh, so there's uh, there's a, something in in the way Americans need to understand the way uh, Soviet uh, governance worked under the Soviet Union and the way the Kremlin plays certain tricks to try to keep a different. Uh, of former Soviet uh, countries in line today, even though these countries are even inside NATO, like Estonia or Ukraine. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the Baltic states right now that's, uh, that's caused a, an uproar. Uh, before, before, uh, before going to talking of Baltic states, I would rather uh, explain my feelings, uh, what hap- uh, which I had when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed. I was okay. terribly, terribly surprised with that thing. I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that communists who just one day ago were saying that the uh, Soviet Union is a good thing, all of a sudden voted for Ukrainian independence, for example. I am from mm. Ukraine. And uh, I, I had very strange feeling. I had feeling that uh, some, some kind of uh, chemistry is going on around us. It's a chemistry which we don't are not able to understand. How how could it be that communists all of a sudden becoming nationalists? Mm-hmm. And now I think, well, we did not have access to those books which we have access now, like the one written by uh, former KGB guy Golitsyn, for example. Or, uh, we didn't have books. Uh, access to books of Bukowski and others, uh, but now after I read those books and when I compare things as, as there are, I think those guys, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were collapsing Soviet Union according to their own plan. They were collapsing it to show to us citizens and to the West, look, we are different, but in fact, they keep, they 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 made everything they could to keep their positions very well secure. Mm-hmm. So if somebody was top communist, he's becoming top nationalist. So in other words, they sort of just changed the, the little markers on their hats and they kept their jobs and they kept rolling on. Yes, yes, and they kept all uh, subordination they had uh, in the Communist Party time. They uh, they still follow uh, orders from Moscow in Kiev. They still follow orders from Moscow, and I would be surprised if in Tallinn, which is capital of Estonia, things are different. Just Estonia is more tough uh, republic than Ukraine. Estonians would always, yet in Soviet times, would always felt themselves separated, not belonging to Soviet Union, even on an uh, everyday basis. 
I served in the Soviet Army. We had the Estonians in our regiment, and I remember how Estonians behaved. They would fulfill the orders, but there was, there was always a wall between us and Estonians. Uh, they were kind of, they, they, they was behaving like they are different. They don't belong uh. to us. They are enforced to do what they are doing. They are doing it because they don't want to die, they want to live. <laughs> but then yeah, they don't belong to us. That's interesting. Uh, 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 unlike Ukrainians, Ukrainians were totally involved in the em- empire structures. Mm-hmm. Well, not all Ukrainians, but many Ukrainians were totally involved in in the empire structures. And even now, if you look through the last names of uh, Russian government, you will see there are a lot of names which are definitely Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that what what they were doing, they indeed decided, okay. It's a good idea to collapse Soviet Union because, okay, we need money from the West. We need West to disarm. We need to have influence on the West, in the West. And if we, he- we have one country, we, ho- we have only one center to, uh, pu- to ask the West and the, the, the West to accept us, to give us money. If we collapse it by 15 uh, parts, every part will have access to the West separately. Mm-hmm. But then there are still, co- each of these parts are still controlled by Moscow. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, now uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, well, uh, yeah, uh, first time I was, I was shocked, uh, when, when I realized that, uh, uh, those nationalistic prizes in Estonia, uh, the previous uh, nationalistic prize in Estonia was in fact inspired by former communists, not just not just uh, average communists, but former communists on the level of uh, who was working on the level of uh, uh, province leader in Estonia. He was on the, This guy was a, called a, uh, uh, a instructor. Level instructor. Mm-hmm. Instructor. A, uh, a major in, analyst strategist for a regional level. Yes, it's yes, a, yes, yes. A, these guys, this guy was definitely, this guy definitely passed through, through the KGB filter. Hmm. It's, uh, he definitely passed KGB clearance at the time. It's, it, and it's not simple clearance. It's just very tough clearance. We they were checking all his life, all his relatives. And everything what he's doing before putting him for, for this Alex, position. Alex, we have to remind our listeners that we talk about the current prime minister of the state mm-hmm. of Estonia. Uh, yes, that's what I was going to say. Unhipped. And now this former communist uh, becoming uh, becoming uh, uh, supreme nationalist in Estonia, and now he is a prime minister. And now whatever whatever the national surprise, he's he's a leader there. And he is saying anti-Russian slogans, anti-Russian things, which normally person should not say, well, uh, uh, leader, leader of the country should not say. He, he knows that he has 40% of population who does respect uh, Peter I or Peter the Great as a Russian Tsar. He has 40% of Russian population, most of whom, uh, most of which uh, respect that guy. And uh, he, sh- how can he say? Uh, uh, how, how can he say directly uh, such an offending things which he said now? He said that Peter the Great was a murderer and 
I, I don't remember what else. He, 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 he should not do it. He should think about consequences because while saying things like that, he is immediately uh, making uh, 40% of Estonians, Estonian citizens, he is making 40% of Estonian citizens uh, against uh, Estonian uh, national country, against Estonia, Estonia as a country. Don't you think so? Well, yeah, sure. now that, that's an interesting... Now, there we, there's a concept called provocation. Yes, he's a provocator. He's a provocator, and actually, uh, Russian security, they have very long history of very high-level provocators. I think the most famous was Azef, yet in Tsar's time, who yes. was, who was uh, setting up bombs, who was uh, leading... Organization of terrorists who would bomb uh, uh, government officials, and at the same time, who was reporting to police. Mm-hmm. And yes. when he was yes. discovered by those terrorists that he is reporting to police, uh, uh, they, they, they wanted to kill him, but he escaped with the help of police. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is very interesting, and it's an alien idea to Americans, but of course, autocratic government has to use some kind of method to control dissent. Of course, instead of killing everybody, instead of mm-hmm. spying on everybody, which is, which is something they like to do, but it's not possible, it's even better to create the center of opposition yourself, to draw in all the opposition so you can carefully watch them and guide them yourself. Absolutely. You totally caught the point. If you cannot, if you cannot stop certain, uh, certain situation from developing it in uh, undesirable way, in, in undesirable direction for you, you should go and lead that direction. You, you should become a leader of that situation. I would like to remind our listeners that we talk about current Prime Minister of Estonia. Ansip Andrus. Yes, Ansip, uh, Andrews Ansip, his name is, who used to be an instructor for the uh, Communist Party at the regional level in the time <laughs> when Estonia was part of the Soviet Union. And uh, now he uh, announced a new provocation. He wants to raise an issue of Peter the Great, who is a symbolic historical figure for many Russians. He wants to uh, picture him to the Estonian people as an enemy of the state of Estonia. And in the past, the same Ansip Andrus, Andrus or Andrus Ansip, he was an initiator of the uh, demolition of the, pami- of the uh, monument to the Soviet uh, soldiers who uh, freed Estonia from fascism, which was another controversial issue that led in, I believe it was 2007 or 2006, to the massive um, disturbances in Tallinn when uh, Russian population uh, were um, looting the stores and uh, burning the cars. Jeff? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's very famous, the idea, and, and I want Americans to understand how this works because it is alien to the way we think, that a person who's a politician who's supposedly working for a certain cause who's really working for the for example the Kremlin he he supposedly maybe he's a Estonian leader or something but he's really working for the Kremlin and the Kremlin's objective is uh, 
to make Estonia as an independent political group seem like a bunch of bad guys, seem like a bunch of, of, of horrible people that would justify the Russians cracking down on them or the Russians being angry with them. And so by creating an incident where the Estonians are, are seen to be acting chauvinistically or acting in a rude way, R Russians are then riled up against the Estonians and say, what is with these people? These people are really a thorn in our side. And here they are, they're, they're doing, you know, they're insulting Peter the Great or they're insulting our history or our nationality. And this, of course, feeds into Russian nationalism. So here they use a person, an agent that they've got in another camp to strengthen their own camp. Yeah, we should remind we should remind the listeners that Peter the Great died more than, uh, almost three hundred years ago. Yeah, it's yeah, three hundred years old story, <laughs> and he is revoking that story, and he is teasing Russians that Peter the Great was bad. If I was Russian, I would most likely I would most likely respect Peter the Great because uh, Peter the Great, despite of all controversy uh, connected to his name, he did a lot of good things to Russia. In on net efforts, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, uh, to to uh, why? What possible purpose? If you just think about it, a common sense way, politician or leader or media person make a statement against a guy that's. Why would it be important to put your your political capital on the line to make a statement about a very famous Russian who's been dead for almost 300 years to, to make a Russians angry is the only possible reason to, because it has no relevance for Estonia. Yes, but this has a lot of re relevance to the KGB and their goals in, in uh, Estonia and in uh, yeah. the former Soviet Union. They want yes. to maintain control and they uh, want to limit Estonian patriotism through these methods. Yes, that's exactly it. If you make Estonian uh, patriotism obnoxious to Russians, and, and I, I want to ask Alex, what is the Russian population in Estonia now? Do you know the figure? Uh, honestly saying no, but I've heard about 40%. Uh, we can try to to check it, I, uh, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can we can check that online probably. I mean, forty percent. You know, it's sort of like a colonization. You you have yes. move into Estonia. They're they're living on Estonian territory. They speaking Russian. They're ethnically Russian. And now all of a sudden, Estonians are just barely a majority in their own country. And then anything they do that is Estonian, anything they think about Russia has this huge impact on this forty percent of their population that is Russian. And of course, so this is a way for itself to get get its uh, uh, its own political influence going in Estonia through the Russian nationals okay. that live in the okay, country. Okay, I have numbers. Okay. Uh, Estonians, real Estonians, ethnical Estonians, 68.6 percent. Okay. Uh, so Russians, 25.6 percent. Others, Ukrainians, White Russians, Finns, and others. But the others, I think, all the others could be. Uh, could be called Russian, so it's not 40%, as I said initially, it's 31.4%. It's still Very a lot. Still yeah. a lot. Still a lot, one third of population. Oh, yeah. One in three, in fact, you can easily rule a country by, con by having a third of the people on your side. 
Yes. The fact is that uh, Russians in Estonia, they are not exactly on the Russian side. Most of them enjoy much better uh, standard of living than Russians in Russia. So and therefore yeah. the importance of this provocation. Therefore the significance of the provocation. Yes, to, to push them out, to, 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 to make them to dislike the country and to set up a new riot. I don't know. He set up mm -hmm. one riot and he will do another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very possible. And, and of course, uh, uh, this is, uh, if you multiply this by all the countries that the Russians are engaged in these, uh, these tricks for, uh, it is, uh, it is, it almost seems like uh, a normal procedure. This is something that you find. You look at Ukraine, you look at uh, Georgia, you look at Azerbaijan, you look at, you know, any of these countries, you find these kind of games going on, being played by the Russians. And, um, <clears throat> and it's, it's their ability to manipulate a country through their agent networks and through these kind of tricks is really astonishing. And, mm -hmm. um, it 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 is remarkable and and Americans have to understand how this works because this can be tried on us in fact it's 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 been done to us before you know i mean this whole thing in poland look at this it's amazing the the, the missile system in poland uh and with the radar in in the czech republic it has no real military significance in the relation of the balance of power between nato and russia it 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 can't stop a russian uh, icbm and it designed to it's it's too close to russia it's too uh positioned incorrectly for it the technology is not made for that it's made to stop a much slower missile coming from the middle east um but 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 russia by making it seem like a threat makes nato seem like the bad guy and so then when the president of the u.s obama surrenders to the russians and says okay we won't have the missile thing in Poland, then the Russians can go and say, oh, well, look at that, the Americans, they don't care about you, they're not going to defend Poland. Yeah, Russians laugh at Obama's ideas. Yeah, yeah the I Russians, and so the Russians, point. what the Russians do is they create a, a wedge between America and Poland, because the Americans feel, bet I mean, the Polish feel betrayed that the Americans pulled out of the deal, because for Poland to have an American base, an American missile base on their territory is symbolic, it's politically symbolic and important to them. And absolutely. we just took it away. Absolutely. That is absolutely true, like you said it. And uh, they play the same game with uh, every our ally. Recently, as a matter of fact, I think it was yesterday, supposedly, quote-unquote, Bin Laden tape or video surfaced out where this uh, quote-unquote Ben Laden, which I don't believe he ever existed as a leader of uh, uh, whatever they call Al-Qaeda, and I always believed that it was a some sort of a Russian or Kremlin to, to be exact provocation. Supposedly this character said that Europe has to be aware that Americans is not going to protect Europe, because Americans didn't protect Georgia when Georgia was brutally bombed by Russians. Ask Georgians how they asked Americans for help and how instead of protecting Georgia, Americans only provided some tents, some food supplies, and some uh, laundry detergent. So isn't it amazing how the enemy plays us all against each other? Jeff? 
Yeah, they do. And you notice how some of these games that are set up are set up in a way that uh, the Russians win no matter what you do. Once you get, once you accept the game as a premise, once you you end up getting sucked into it, whether you're an Estonian or you're a Russian who's living in Estonia or you're a, a, a Polish citizen or the president of the U.S., once you get involved in this game, you're going to lose no matter what decision you make. If you keep the missiles in Poland, if you take the missiles out of Poland, if you if you're Estonian and you 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 were sent you want to be sensitive to Russia, uh, you lose. If you want to hold on to your Estonian national identity, you lose. It's like they set these situations up in this way, and, and it takes a lot of brain power. They sit and they devise these games. And of course, once you realize the way the game is structured, it's not really hard to start inventing these games yourself. You could start inventing, you and I and Alex, uh, we could all start inventing these games. And we should, as a matter of fact, because we should. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't have Institute for Strategic Masquerading. Oh, we have everything we need if you put our mind to it. Uh, we, because we have to confront the enemy. We need to do something because otherwise... We all risk the genocidal attack against us. Soviet Kremlin people, well, I don't want to call them Russians because I highly respect Russian people, but these gangsters who occupied and actually destroyed half of the population of their own country in uh, the 20th century, they have enough weapons of mass destruction to destroy every single American, every single Pole, and every single Ukrainian. And we have a big suspicion that this is what they actually plan to do. Why would they keep all this enormous amount of hundreds of thousands of nuclear charges? Well, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands, definitely. Tens, not hundreds, of course, tens. Of course, but they also yeah, have but tens is enough also. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is a good point that you raise. What is the, you know, we, we're looking at their tactics on a smaller level, what is it that they want? And you know, um, there's there's one thing that you that that a simple way of putting it that I used in my column this week. Uh, the secret of the West uh, versus the East is not that the West that we're all you know angels, we're all good people, and and they're all bad people over there. This the secret is is that our political culture evolved at the idea of checks and balances that when you set up political power when you set up a country you make sure that there is not one center of absolute power in the country you make many different centers of power with constitutional rights and abilities to check the other powers you have the senate can veto you know legislation you know that the house creates the president can veto the congress something that people fight over within the country but it becomes something that the country can imagine, you can imagine expanding, getting bigger and bigger and greater and greater because it, it, the tendency of power is to build on itself. That's why one of the reasons it needs to be checked. And in Russia or China or these other oriental despotisms, there's, there, their history of the country is one scheme after another to increase their, continue to increase their power, to stay in power, perpetuate their power and intensify their power. And this explains everything they do basically in a very simple way. That is absolutely true. And it's very interesting because, uh, well, most of 
us in Ukraine, and I think people in Estonia and Russia, they still have this illusion that the power is derived from the announced, proclaimed political system, from the so-called constitution that actually doesn't, doesn't give any power to no one, and the power is maintained by those people who can order to kill their enemies, who have enough resources derived from stealing of the natural resources like oil experts that are under the mafia control and they can use that money to bribe, use that money to hire killers. They have an extremely um, wide and professional and um, sophisticated apparatus of uh, terror, basically, that never disappeared. So the real power belongs to those who can order their political or other enemies to be killed. And Ukrainians mm -hmm. still have the illusion that they vote for very good and democratic president Yushchenko, that he would have some power against this. Which, which, how, would he, how would someone who cannot and will never resort to violence uh, be stronger than the this violent mafiosi KGB system that is still in place. This is not well, realistic. Yeah, and and maybe Alex, you remember there's this, uh, and maybe um, uh, Serge, you can understand there. Remember this statement that Stalin made. Stalin made some kind of statement like, uh, "Killing is a solution uh, because uh, if a man makes a problem, you kill a man, and then there's no man and no problem." Absolutely. Yeah, no man, no man, no problem. That's a famous, that's famous, very famous yeah. expression. Yeah. Yeah, a famous expression of Stalin's, and 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 this is kind of uh, the expression. And it's interesting why, in the Soviet regime, they're very careful, and they understand this. When they murder people, they don't like to make martyrs out of them. That's why they kill people in quiet, uh, in secret. Uh, the mass graves, they they cart them off, uh, they shoot them somewhere, so, and and if you kill. You know, it's like Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Well, if you kill one person, he becomes his focus. He could become a focus of national attention. But if you kill 100,000, then everyone's just simply mourning the loss of a son or a brother or a cousin or a father. And, yes. and, and, and so this uh, not only intensifies the terror, but removes the uh, dignity of the individual into a mass grave situation. This is very profound observation, by the way. Doctor Goebbels, Doctor Goebbels, envied Stalin and Stalin's propaganda. He was saying that, uh, well, Sherbakov was the leader at the time of Soviet propaganda. He was the chief of uh, Soviet Foreign Bureau, and he was saying that uh, Sherbakov is a real expert on how to make propaganda. <laughs> he mm -hmm. was envied because Soviet propaganda was always much harder to. Uh, to to uh, to understand what's going on actually behind it. Uh, there, Not yeah, like this propaganda. You know, people who who hate the Soviet Union, and this is something I learned by talking to anti-communists and and wa watching Soviet propaganda over the years. Soviet propaganda, when you read it, and you're anti-communist, and you you say, well, this is just rubbish. It's just the most worthless thing to read. But actually, you're missing something if you don't read it carefully because they have deception, layers of deception in their propaganda. Mm -hmm. so, that even, so that the very fact that you dismiss it, you are missing important strategic information. You're missing what they're really intending to do. 
And that mm-hmm. whenever they put out propaganda, it's not a straightforward read it and you can tell what they're after. It's very deceptive even on that level. When you read it, you don't really know because there's misdirection even in their propaganda. That for the people that, that disagree with it. That is exactly true. And, uh, um, well, I would, I would propose uh, this kind of um, sort of a um, beginner's model to understand Marxism. I would propose for the beginners to uh, realize that there are two basic layers of Marxism. One layer is the layer that promises to the fools that they will not have to work and that they will be provided with everything. And another layer is for the actual rulers who uh, are told secretly or somehow let known secretly that uh, for the rulers, for those who are part of the ruling elite, uh, the Marxism is actually a strategy, a recipe to get uh, the power, absolute power, and to keep the power forever. Those two layers, for fools and for those who play the game. Fools will be promised lies, and the uh, very narrow group of rulers, they will actually be taught how to conquer power at any cost, do it effectively, and do it unreversibly. Jeff? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's part of the pro- You know, what's interesting is the psychology of Karl Marx. You go back and you read Marx's biography, and he, he, you know, the really careful biographer of Marx realizes that Marx didn't really believe in his class analysis or a lot of the details of his uh, Marxist revolutionary philosophy. A lot of it was just a justification. Uh, Marx admired aristocrats of the old warrior aristocracy. He looked at the bourgeoisie, he looked at modern developing society, and he didn't like it. He liked, he didn't like the idea of democracy, he didn't like the idea of freedom, he liked the idea of being in charge because he liked to imagine himself being the aristocrat, the boss, the dictator, the, the new nobility, so to speak. And he looked at it and he said, the bourgeoisie is not a ruling class, they're not a warrior class, they should not be able to hold on to power. If you look at his contempt for the bourgeoisie, his, his contempt for the people who've built this prosperous society we have, his main contempt is that they do not possess those brutal characteristics which later appear in the Soviet elite. That is exactly absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Soviet. That's that, that, that's what I think. That Soviet form post-Soviet elite, former Soviet elite, now made capitalism exactly how Marx depicted it. It made capitalism in Ukraine, for example, ugly, disgusting capitalism where people should uh, either die or run away from there, or they should become gangsters if they want to survive. Mm-hmm. Everybody, yeah. it's it's like it's like almost everybody. Everybody has some uh, conflicts with law, and those conflicts are so far forgiven. But in case if needed, everybody could be put in prison because uh, because taxes are made so high that uh, business cannot run if they pay all the taxes. So businessmen looking for the way how to run, uh, not to pay taxes. That's the most fam- the most common thing, for example. But then you can take any businessman to, to prison if you wish. I you wonder, can tell him you didn't pay these and these taxes. You know, go, so 
I wonder go, go what, what Marxists yeah. what Marxists will do when they will destroy all economy of the world. What are they gonna eat? What what are they gonna feed to their children? It's it's well, like a can, you know it's like a cancer tumor. Cancer yeah. tumor doesn't think what it's going to do when it kills the whole body on which it is living. It if, just, if you, it, if it's you just think a cancer about, tumor. It's just uh, grows uh, grows and grows till uh, till it dies with the whole body. Well, uh, more primitive forms of society have existed with slavery, where you had uh, uh, aristocratic elites that controlled society, and the majority beneath them were slaves. You had a small middle class, and then you had the most people were slaves. These societies existed, but they existed at a much more primitive level than modern society, a much more primitive social state. And uh, so what we have in the ethic of uh, communism, uh, whatever we want to call it, it's really this, uh, this elitism of this group of robbers, uh, because what is a, uh, a baron of the medieval uh, time? Um, the, a baron of the medieval time is a warlord. He's a killer uh, who has organized a fiefdom. And uh, here we have this this idea of organizing a fiefdom on a, on, on a global scale according to the revolutionary theory of Marx and Lenin, you have a justification for taking over countries and converting workers into soldiers to overthrow the bourgeoisie. I mean, it's, it's this elaborate system which, of course, has evolved and changed. They've, they've left a lot of Marx's ideas behind, and they had Lenin's ideas, and they left his behind, and then Stalin's, and then Khrushchev's and so on, and now we're in this era where they they each time they they're sophisticated in what they're doing, but the mission of what they're doing is the same: to get power for their gang, to control and reduce everything to their to, to subjection to them, and uh, that's their ultimate. And the thing is, is that they realize that if Western democracy becomes powerful and sophisticated and recognizes what they are that it will snuff them out. That's another important realization that they have. So this is what we have to do. We have to try to promote this knowledge and encourage more and more people to, try to join our intellectual pursuit to uncover this uh, can cancerous uh, threat to the humanity. Yes, absolutely. We, we have to get people to understand this isn't a casual danger. You know, people treat Russia like, oh, they're going to reform, oh, they're going to get better, or the Chinese, oh, we're trading with them, now they're capitalists like we are. No, never. So they, you know, just because someone does something that you do doesn't make them you. Just because a communist can engage in trade and pretend to be a businessman doesn't mean he isn't a communist or isn't out to get you. The, the, the gang in Beijing have gotten an enormous position for building a blue water navy, for building an ICBM force. When, when I was a, a child, how they get me to eat the vegetables I didn't want to eat was saying, there are children starving in China. Well, now mm. the Chinese are turning it around on us. Now the Chinese have used the, the, the uh, abundant cheap labor that they have in their country to gain a trade advantage, we've opened this trade with us, and we can't win. We, have, we cannot but fall just dealing with them, because they're our enemy. They want to destroy us. They're using trade to deindustrialize the United States. They're using trade to get all our factories over here to steal all our secrets, and to build up their war-making potential. 
and and also to control our dollars and to devalue our economy when they say, oh well, we don't, we're going to crash the dollar, you know, because we've got so many of them and we control mo- the largest share of your uh, your treasuries. So we're just going to cause your economy to to have a serious problem. By the uh, way, I've he- I've heard from I I've heard from uh, American engineer who is retired now, I, I've heard exactly what you're saying. He uh, He's coming from like a point of view of somebody who built enormous amount of very important objects in the United States, uh, like bridges, uh, tunnels, other construction things, uh, a lot of things. Uh, he says that, well, in my lifetime, American industry actually collapsed and was moved to China. And what are we left with? And what are we going to do when we need spare parts for weapons? And things like that. And this is coming from someone who is uh, in his 90s now and who worked in the United States uh, for like dozens of years. And from the other um, from the other friend of mine who is a, uh, uh, a very, very highly trained uh, mathematician engaged in um, economic modeling, I've heard another opinion, to make it short and not to overload our listeners with scientific terms, I'll say that um, he is confident that in trading with China, who is using this... Um, methods that well like like you said cheap labor and manipulation with currency actually that trading the open trade with such a power as china probably contributed the most to the current financial financial crisis mm-hmm. that's that's very interesting opinions that are basically coming from uh, uh, very bright people and uh, worse uh, you know other people to think about it and look into it well, when you see things like uh, aircraft factories um, and uh, uh, shipbuilding capacity being moved to China, uh, serious manufacturing capacities that had been belonged in the United States, when there are certain military-related industry that no longer uh, are conducted in the United States of America, where we're dependent on importing it. And especially from a country like the United, uh, country like the People's Republic of China, this is very suspicious. And one has to wonder, you know, when the Chinese started this policy, that they had this in mind from the beginning, because the Chinese, very much like the Russians, think in these long terms. And the fact that Russia and China have become allies now and have joint military exercises, and their general staffs work together. And of course, I was told by one defector that that it's almost been 20 years since they formed an intelligence alliance where they shared intelligence on the United States with each other. And and of course, we don't know how far back this goes, but we know that uh, that the Soviet Union and the People's Republic were old allies at the beginning of the Cold War. We shouldn't be forgetting where the Chinese get their nuclear weapon. And nuclear weapon is not a a toy or is not a gift. It's something that. If one power gives nuclear weapon to the other power, it means that this first power who who is a giver actually knows exactly how they will control the other partner. Because that nuclear weapon gift could totally change the balance between two. So Russians somehow knew something that China will never, ever, even possible, like even to 1% degree could become an enemy of Russia. 
Mm-hmm. And there are also, they also gave a gift to China in the form of part of Russian territory not long ago. Just like a couple of years ago, Putin presented, uh, it, it looked like a gift to China with, with a Russian island on the Amur River. And mm-hmm. China now is building, the, Chinese now be building a huge city on that island. I may mm. I may explain that it looks like the people in Kremlin they they don't really care about the land that much because they somehow are confident that they will own the world very soon and they don't Exactly, really exactly. Just the same as the collapse Soviet Union. Why should we they care about uh, formalities, bureaucratic formalities if they know that they still control everything? Yeah, there's an interesting point to be made about this in the history of the Soviet Union or Russia since 1917. Uh, and it's an, it's important uh, explanation for what happened in the 1930s and 40s and then in the 1980s and 90s. Um, Stalin built the Soviet economy as this, uh, as one might imagine, as a giant machine, not for uh, a normal economy, for people to live and better their lives, but as a machine that could produce enormous numbers of tanks and bombers and artillery pieces and weapons of all kinds and and in order for him to basically take over Europe and this was this was the whole uh, structuring the whole battle to structure the Soviet economy in the 20s and 30s leading up to World War II and then of course uh, after Stalin's death there was a kind of retreat uh, from that for a while but then under Brezhnev they started this tremendous military buildup and they started to perfect the nuclear war engine machinery and again they intensified the machinery and, and as if a nuclear war was planned in the 1980s uh, in the event that it would be and then when that nuclear war was set aside and they decided against it uh, they relaxed the economy they allowed it to collapse and, and of course the collapse of the economy in Russia that happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union was really the the exhaustion the effect of the of the people just reeling from what had gone on the decades before uh, the economy having to try to become normal in some way and now we see that they have sort of tried to heal their economy and reconstruct it uh, under their their six socialist guidance uh, they're they're back to building it up they're back to to, to building this war machine because they now they've used this period of of um, a low building uh, in military things of the past two decades uh, and lower military uh, uh, building to uh, lull the West into a, into disarmament, where the President of the United States now wants to get rid of 90% of our nuclear weapons, massive cuts in the Navy, Army, Air Force, and Marine Corps now proposed just at the exact moment when some months ago President Medvedev announced that Russia is in, going to engage in a massive rearmament program. Yes, and it was also announced, that, I, and I believe it is uh, already recorded for some years, that Russia is doubling its military budget like every year. Yeah, and the number of recruits is increasing in the Russian army, so they're bringing in more people into the Russian military system. So just as the U.S. has is is slacking off 
And the West in general is slacking off. And now we're guided to fight this Islamist enemy, this Islamist enemy that some, as, as Serge described, that some uh, group of criminals hiding in caves in Pakistan or Afghanistan. Uh, we don't need the kind of weapons to fight these terrorists that we need to fight uh, a large conventional enemy. So yes. we are putting away all these very difficult military systems that take years and years to develop. We're setting them aside to fight this, you know, this this possibly false enemy when Russia is is been long been sort of working on designs of weapons that are being suddenly brought online now. I have to remind our listeners about the fate of the state of Israel. That is a tiny little state in the size of a uh, Los Angeles and its suburbs, or like less, little bit less than the size of state of New Jersey that you can actually cross in your car in two or three hours. And that little state with about like from four to six million people of population, uh, since 1948 is constantly in state of war with its many tens of, uh, actually hundreds of millions of Arab population states. And they are winning every little and every big war. Meaning that the state of civilization of the Arab countries is at such a low level that little state of Israel can easily protect itself. And now we're talking that some even smaller, even like a tiny group of criminals are threatening the United States. They destroyed part of the New York City downtown and part of Pentagon. I mean... Guys, this is silly. Come on, don't be fooled so easily by the enemy propaganda. There is no Islamic radical threatening us. It's Kremlin who's threatening us. And they just use yeah. this as a Maskirovka tactic, as a cower tactics. Masquerade. Yeah, it's a masquerade. And it's, uh, in fact, they have this uh, idea of diversion. Uh, uh, it's written about by uh, Viktor Suvorov in his book that he wrote in the 1980s called Spetsnaz. And in this book, he talks about a period that precedes World War III that is called Gray Terror, in which forces apparently not connected to, to Moscow begin attacking the West. And he said that, that this attack is actually, these powers are actually mercenaries controlled by intermediaries that the West cannot detect the connection to Moscow. And the purpose of this Great Terror period is to divert the police and intelligence forces and military forces of the Western powers to this enemy away from the Soviet Union. And he says that this, he doesn't say how long this period of Great Terror is to last, but he says that this period of Great Terror is, is, could be very significant. And he also says, most interesting, that during this period of Great Terror there would be an intensive uh, Russian uh, disinformation campaign through various uh, sources to discredit the top leadership of the West, to scandalize them and to, to make them seem incompetent or corrupt or somehow vicious. Now, isn't it interesting how since 9-11, we had an American president who's like his popularity was destroyed, his credibility was destroyed, his administration is considered a scandal and his war in Iraq a mistake. And all of it following this exact pattern described in the 80s exactly. by Viktor Suvorov in his chapter on the Great Terror. That is exactly true. And I remember articles by the Romanian defector, a two-star general, Jan Mihai Pacepa, who uh, described in a 
in in detail how it was done, how actually w this concept was conceived in the 1945 when uh, the war was won and when the help of the United States was no longer needed in Kremlin. So the generals decided that, well, it worked so well for as far as propaganda in order to rally Russians against Hitler when we created this image and ridiculed Hitler and made a like almost a Satan out of Hitler image which is of course true but now they wanted in 1945 they wanted to apply exactly the same tactics to create a new enemy and they for a target they choose US president and they went on it and they successfully created almost a anti-American hysteria in the Soviet Union. And we all remember it, who used to live in the Soviet Union in the 80s and the 70s. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, and, and the sophistication, when you have a society that, uh, that's led by uh, criminals who are completely dedicated to conquering and controlling and 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 uh, uh, killing their enemies. Uh, not only do they develop sophisticated strategies and and methods for for all of these uh, things, uh, but they also because they have devoted their intellectual resources so intensively to this, there is nothing on the Western side, sort of matching them, equaling what they're doing, because no one in the West is 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 uh, maniacal enough. The West doesn't function like this, so we can't even imagine these this mentality of these people. Yeah, the United it's, States it's, doesn't have institute for strategic masquerading. Yeah, no, it's it's silly to people, us. To say, yeah. You know, we want a normal life. We're a normal country. We want a normal life. Why would we possibly want to to you know? It's like I hear these people who listen to Soviet propaganda, or Russian propaganda. You hear this everywhere now. This anti-American stuff. And you listen to it, and it's like, America, you know, it wants to dominate the world. You know, they want to kill all these innocent people in third world countries, and they're stealing all of our stuff. It's like, oh, there's only so many Chevys and Fords in the world, and the Americans stole them all. And it was the American military and the Navy that made it happen. And the U.S. nuclear weapons are blackmailing everyone. It's not true. The United States wants peace. Uh, we don't even think like that. Uh, we're thinking about how to make it build a better mousetrap trap how to make deals and trade with people, how to build big shopping malls and live nice and entertain ourselves and bring our children up. And uh, and this whole idea of global conquest is alien to us, but it's not alien to the people in Bay that run run China and that rule Russia. And, and it's interesting, this old propaganda that goes all the way back to Stalin that characterizes the West as, you know, these vicious militarist uh, capitalist exploiters. This is This propaganda is still going on. And, and when I hear it, I'm familiar with the old stuff from the 30s and, and, and 40s and so on. And I think, you know what, do they recognize what's coming out of their mouths? You know, I even shame these people. I, I tell them, you know, this is Stalinist type rant that you're talking. It's just an updated version of it. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They don't even know where the ideas they're repeating come from, that it was invented in the Kremlin, you know, that they're, that, that, that they're useful idiots just to have it in their mouths. Useful idiot is expression which Lenin used toward uh, Russian rich people who were so stupid to support with money Lenin's Bolshevik party. 
Yes, that's correct. He used that, that, that where that expression appeared from. Yeah. Useful idiots. <laughs> yeah, from useful idiots to you. <laughs> and then of yeah, course that, we that's have, how he was romantic. We got some money from useful idiots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That right. that's right. Because because they're too stupid to realize that that he's he's he doesn't care about them. He's not helping them. He's just exploiting them to get more power. And and of course, if you read Lenin's works, if you read about his biography, you realize really how vicious this man was, uh, how many executions he ordered, how many towns he ordered destroyed in order to secure Soviet rule, you know, justifying it uh, however he might. Um, and, of course, uh, this mentality continues. Vladimir Putin is every bit as evil uh, as uh, Stalin or uh, Lenin uh, because he has grasped this. I mean, he's even stated that his role is to um, is to correct the disintegration of the of the Soviet Union to reverse that. And uh, indeed, that is exactly what appears to be happening under under Putin. That is correct. That is correct. Actually, I'm surprised. Uh, I was surprised that that Marxism became so popular in Russia after I read uh, several articles written by Karl Marx, which are totally anti-Russian articles, which are written in with so much hatred toward Russians. Actually, that Russians are not supposed to exist. Russians are supposed to die. And he was yes. saying it explicitly, and after. After I read these articles, I don't understand how come that Marxism became so popular in Russia. How could it happen? Well, they killed everybody who was against it. Uh, uh, if well, we count, mm -hmm. I don't think it was. It, you know, it's interesting to say this because we, we have to be careful about popular. Because um, the Russian Social Democratic Party and these people, I don't think they really had a majority. What they had is they had a majority of a certain kind of intellectual that was completely, you know, these people didn't have a real professions. You know, Lenin was a lawyer who couldn't win a case. They were misfits. They were people that didn't fit in anywhere, and so they, they styled themselves revolutionaries. Some of them were sincere and believed in what they were doing and thought it was good. Others of them were cynical and just seeking power. But they were a, a, a group of misfits who really didn't have anything except this idea of seizing power in this revolution. And uh, how they took power, not through an election, but by overthrowing the Kerensky government, the provisional government, in 1917. And um, they basically hijacked the Russian Revolution that had begun earlier that year when, after the Tsar advocated when, when the riots in St. Petersburg got out of hand. And so it, so it is in a lot of other revolutions, whether it's the Cuban Revolution or the Chinese Revolution, you find out that this revolution has been hijacked. And then in a country like Russia or China, where there are far more peasants than there are proletarians, where there's no really large bourgeoisie or middle class, where there hasn't been really the kind of capitalist phase that Marx uh, relies on, but what there has been, and this goes back to my earlier point, there was the system was a system of highly centralized power under the Tsar. Whether it was the Chinese emperor or the Tsar, you have the system of highly centralized power, and what the Bolsheviks did is they captured it. They captured the center. In Western society, making a revolution against a republic, a true republic with checks and balances, is much more difficult. 
Because if you take it over the government, if you get elected to the presidency or you get control of Congress, you have the rest of the society has mechanisms to stop you and so stop your power. But in Russia, once the Bolsheviks got the center, the only thing that could be done was to fight them for that center because there wasn't going to be elections. There was no system of checks and balances. There was no cultural tradition limiting power. And the same can be said in China. Of course. So That's, They had slogan, all power to the Soviets. Yes. In 1917, that was the main slogan, all power to the Soviets. So all power, all power means everything. Yeah, and, and so, of course, what we find is that Marxism didn't spread, didn't take off in Germany or take off in Britain or the United States or industrial, highly industrialized countries with a large middle class or a large working class, a large proletariat, but rather it took off in these uh, autocratic countries that were very backward. And so you see in Latin American countries where there's a history of dictatorship like Cuba, where Batista is overthrown by Castro, uh, where Castro kind of seems like a good guy and then he just hijacks the revolution and turns it into a Soviet satellite country. Um, or you have a revolution in China where Mao basically, uh, they were, uh, they basically, uh, fought against the Japanese side by side with the Kuomintang and then with Russian support turned against the Kuomintang and swallowed them up and took over the whole country after the war. It's it's always the case that when a country is involved in a revolutionary process, whether it was the Chinese Revolution began by Sun Yat-sen or the Russian Revolution begun in March of 1917, the communists come in during the process when the revolution is still ongoing, whether it takes months or years, and they they take hold of that revolution and the centers of power you know, kind of system that and tradition that existed there prior. And they so that democracy never had a chance to take hold in China or in Russia. Right. And uh, that's why those countries, and this is why it's so important that uh, uh, we were talking about what happens in Estonia, but a lot of the active measures directed against the United States, whether it's, you know, why are, why are, uh, why are feminists, the biggest feminists, you know, from the far left? Why do they have this Marxist pedigree? Uh, why? Because Marxism is an instrument, it's a weapon for damaging our society, for sabotaging it. Um, why sabotage it? Because if you can break down the culture and break down the system of checks and balances and the traditions that, that limit power, because in America it's very cultural and, the, and, and it's not just the Constitution, it's other things in society. If you can break that down, and create a kind of anarchy on a on a uh, personal interpersonal level. Exactly. Then you can create. Then you you create the necessity for a strong centralized power because, well, men and women don't get along anymore. So you have the family court system where suddenly judges are acting like Soviet judges in the United States, mm -hmm. and I understand even in Canada, and in Great Britain. So that suddenly you have this uh, this new form of law uh, based on feminism, feminist ideas. Uh, and you have people, look, most marriages are ended by women. So maybe women that have been contaminated with this idea, or this feminist idea, and so the courts step in and say, okay, well, you have literally in the U.S. and Canada and Great Britain a massive uh, autocracy. 
judicial autocracy grown up around what's happening with families, break, broken homes. Yes. And this is just one element, and I'll, I'll just, uh, we, we have to end the podcast soon, but, but one thing I, I will, I had an amazing conversation with Colonel Stanislav Lunev 11 years ago. Uh-huh. We were, we had a long conversation, and he suddenly asked me, and, and he was a, uh, a colonel in the GRU, the, the main intelligence directorate of the Russian general staff, and he said, do you think America is naturally a violent country? And I said, no, huh. it's not. It's not. You know, and he said, "You're right." He says, "I I'm into Mark Twain, and I've I've read a lot of stories of the Old West, and it really wasn't a violent country. You know, it's sort of like uh, America was more like Little House on the Prairie than it was like Gunsmoke. You know, if you look at uh, old TV shows, those that can remember those those programs depicting the Old West. And um, he said, he said, now here's what my organization did. Here's what the Russian general staff or the Soviet general staff did years and years ago." Under the table, through intermediaries, so it wouldn't be detected, they gave money to Hollywood producers to put more sex, violent, violence, and corruption in American uh, movies and television. Yeah. To begin a process of breaking down American moral sensibilities. Yeah. Because he said that these moral sen- sensibilities, sensibilities made it impossible for them to advance their subversion in the country. Of course, yes, that is absolutely true. And by the way, I remember the quote from Lenin that the most important type of art, genre of art for us is cinema because its effect is the widest and the deepest. And also, I wanted to say this. uh, We talked talked with Alex uh, the other day about Mark Twain. And this is interesting that what he commented. Alex, may you repeat that? Well, I don't quite remember what we are talking about. Ah, ah I think maybe I said uh, about that you can read Mark Twain to imagine what's going on on Ukrainian elections. Right. He, you yes. said that... that the yes, I, oh, I remember the story of Mark Twain when uh, he wrote how he was, uh, how he was running for governor. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember that uh, his story, and I think that was going going in Ukraine. If you are not approved by Moscow, you will immediately have all the same problems which Mark Twain had. Exactly. With hungry kids, with uh, disabled people around you, blaming you and accusing you in something. And <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And that's, that's actually a problem which uh, Ukrainian, uh, current Ukrainian President Yushchenko has, actually. Yes. So that's how, how, how his, pro- his problems are exactly as Mark Twain described in his story. In 18... Uh, what year was that written? I don't know. It's uh, more than 100, 150 years ago, probably. Yes, yes. So we are Ukrainian political culture is 150 years behind American current political culture. Well, maybe not current, but the one that before the subversion started. We h- will hope that the subversion of America culture and politics will not uh, kill this uh, republic, but we will have to work hard to prevent it, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, it's it's it, it does require work, and uh, we have to somehow um, combat this. And this is this is the challenge that we have uh, currently. Uh, I am uh, Jeff Nyquist. This has been the StrategicCrisis.com podcast. 
for late September 2009. And of course, with me is Alex from Canada and uh, Serge, my co-host uh, there on the East Coast in New York. And uh, this has been a good discussion. I think, uh, I mean, this is a good introduction for people who want to understand.